Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Caroline Heldman about institutional betrayal and institutional courage. We recognize that this topic may be difficult for some of you. Please remember that you can always turn the episode off and listen later, or even listen with a friend. My name is Dr. Alexa Sardina. And I'm Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Fear. Dr. Caroline Heldman is chair of the Critical Theory and Social Justice Department and chair of Gender, Women, and Sexuality Studies at Occidental College in Los Angeles. Dr. Caroline Heldman is chair of the Critical Theory and Social Justice Department and chair of Gender, Women, and Sexuality Studies at Occidental College in Los Angeles. She is also executive director of the Representation Project and a political commentator for Spectrum and CNN International. Her research specializes in media, the presidency, and systems of power. Dr. Heldman has published six books on gender, justice, and politics, and her work has been featured in numerous documentaries, including Misrepresentation, The Mask You Live In, The Hunting Ground, Informant, Equal Means Equal, Liberated, Nevertheless, and The Great American Lie. Dr. Heldman splits her time between Los Angeles and New Orleans, where she co-founded the New Orleans Women's Shelter and the Lower Ninth Ward Living Museum. She also co-founded End Rape on Campus, Faculty Against Rape, and End Rape Statute of Limitations that successfully abolished the time limit on prosecuting rape in California. She is currently curating the first civil rights museum in New Orleans with Miss Leona Tate, one of the four little girls who desegregated the Deep South in 1960. She is also a dear friend and colleague of mine, We have authored several journal articles and two books together, including one I'm sure we'll be talking about today. Caroline, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast with us. It is wonderful to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here, Caroline. You have such an extensive bio and you're involved in so many projects related to gender broadly, but also sexual violence more specifically. And so can you talk a little bit about how you got into this field and What led to your activism in the area? I got involved in uh, sexual violence prevention uh, when I was in graduate school. Uh, I was a resident director. And uh, up until that point, I actually hadn't lived on a college campus, so I didn't really understand the dynamics. So I'm in a PhD program at Rutgers, and I am seeing all of these cases and and adjudicating cases coming across my desk of sexual violence and uh, was rather horrified because I I just hadn't been a part of that culture. 
Um, and it seemed like it had, it was just a normal thing. You know, we're processing these like normal cases. And I remember, uh, the psychologist, uh, at the campus, uh, saying that, you know, sexual violence is such a serious crime that it's like taking a vase and smashing that vase and putting it back together and the pieces, it takes years to put the pieces back together. And I thought to myself, you know, with one particularly heinous case, they're all awful, but one particularly heinous case that we're just treating it. I, I'm supposed to be adjudicating it in the same way that I'm adjudicating a group of young men who dragged a keg into their apartment, uh, on you know, their on-campus apartment, and how absurd that was. And so um, that's when I, I first got involved in uh, violence prevention work, um, you know, at, in in graduate school in the early 90s. And I should say that, you know, I'm a survivor of sexual violence at age four and again at age 17. Um, and so it wasn't like I was new to sexual violence. I was just new to the kind of institutional normalization of sexual violence. Organizations like Faculty Against Rape and End Rape on Campus emerged out of a backlash against institutions of higher education that failed survivors in egregious ways. These systemic failures, which are highlighted in documentaries like The Hunting Ground, speak to the institutional betrayal that is so pervasive. For many survivors, the betrayal by the institutions they love feel worse than the initial trauma they experienced. Can you talk about what we mean when we say institutional betrayal? Institutional betrayal is when, I mean, in shorthand, an institution betrays you. You expect that institution uh, to care about your safety and to care about you thriving, especially regarding academic work, right? And so institutional betrayal, uh, if you're living on a college campus or commuting, you have this idea that the institution cares about you. They did put all of this effort into recruiting you. Uh, they, you know, professors make you feel loved in the classroom, hopefully. Um, and you have this entire kind of surround care at the institution that is there to make you feel safe. But then when this egregious, terrible, uh, life-altering event happens, uh, they actually end up protecting themselves. So uh, institutional betrayal on a college campus looks like, you know, what I've um, worked with a lot over the years, um, discouraging survivors from coming forward. Well, let's start earlier than that. Not including good definitions and orientations about what sexual violence is, not uh, creating a culture where sexual violence is not tolerated, right? Um, there are very few things that shouldn't be allowed on a college campus or really in any any kind of subculture or culture. Um, but on a college campus, you have a unique ability to intervene in subcultures. And so not really setting that culture up, not, not saying, hey, it's not okay, um, not letting folks know what it is. And then when it happens, um, doubting them, uh, asking, you know, what role they played in it, discouraging them from filing a complaint. And then, uh, you know, if, if you're one of the few college students who actually does file a complaint, like survivors more broadly, um, you know, very, very few cases reported, um, you then go through a process which is dehumanizing and which you know, your basic, uh, you know, your basic word is questioned as so somehow you're benefiting from a survivor status. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, we, in the broader culture, we see about 1% of rapists uh, spending a day in jail. On a college campus, about 1% of rapists are being expelled. The numbers are remarkably similar because the mechanisms of not believing survivors and discouraging survivors uh, and betraying them 
um, is is remarkably intense. And I think, you know, for a cut, you expect, or at least I expect the police to not necessarily, uh, law enforcement to not necessarily step in and do something great. But a college campus, I think all students expect that up into the point at which they're betrayed. So it's really interesting as you were talking about that, I was thinking about my experience because I was raped on a college campus, but not by a college student. And I did report. And I'm not going to name the university, but they treated me horribly and wanted to cover it up as much as possible and make it go away. And then also, interestingly, when I was back testifying at the trial, the university newspaper was reporting on the trial and they were not supportive at all. They insinuated that I was lying and I had not been at this university for not even two weeks. Um, and I felt horribly um, because of that reporting and just the treatment from the university. So I can't even imagine had I been there longer, had it been a student and going through all of that victim blaming and lack of support, uh, I, I can't imagine that feeling. So it's it's horrific. I initially got involved in the campus anti-rape movement, or actually one of the, the early architects, when so many students were coming forward and saying, the institution keeps doing this. They've given my rapist a book report. Uh, they, you know, suspended my rapist, but he's back on campus. And we know on college campuses, you know, it's a small number of serial rapists who rape an average of six times. And, um, you know, one, one older, but still, um, you know, great study in terms of methodology finds that it's about 4% of men on campus engaging uh, in over 90% of the sexual violence. And it's not just against women, it's against men and gender nonconforming folks. And in fact, if you're a man on a college campus, you're more likely to be a victim of sexual violence, a survivor of that, than you are to be a perpetrator. Um, and campuses know this, so really all they need to do to, to, to dramatically reduce the rates of sexual violence on campus is to just find the 4% who are serial rapists. Um, the write-out study finds that you know 11% of men will engage in some form of sexual violence over the course of their lifetime, but it's really the 4% who are the serial rapists. And, and you can identify them because in my work, I mean, it was pretty easy. I had a lot of survivors coming forward naming the same person. So once you have that pattern in place, institutions should be taking that next step um, but they don't oftentimes. And they're worried about litigation and getting sued. But back in 2013, I had so many students coming forward and saying that they were being betrayed by my institution, uh, by institutions nearby. Um, and the campus anti-rape movement actually, you know, the reason we have the Me Too movement is because of the campus anti-rape movement, because we launched a national conversation back in 2013. And our strategy was very explicit in that um, so it was a, a group of uh, two faculty members and a student from Occidental College, two students from UNC, uh, two students from Berkeley, two students from USC, and two students from Northmore. And we were all hive mining. Uh, and our strategy would very intentionally was to file federal complaints. And we 
turned into uh, a, a little kind of quasi expert team of folks who was not only you know working on our complaints and, and I wrote the complaints uh, Cleary and Title IX complaints for Oxy with the assistance of a little army of, of student survivors who had experienced this, but we also helped folks at other institutions write their Title IX complaints, knowing that these would be official complaints that would then be newsworthy. We also specifically used social media. We knew the moment was right. I just remember, you know, sitting down with my college president in 2011 and trying to get things to be different and trying to get the institution to engage and act, be the, on, on the, the front of this, really leading the nation in this. Um, and he promised to, you know, glad handing that was one of their strategies. And then, of course, did not almost nothing or, or worse than nothing. But I remember telling him, like, a wave is coming. It's coming because of social media. It's coming because survivors can now tell their stories unfiltered in a public setting and even in an anonymous way so they can share the, the horrors without facing the horrors that come with the only crime where we put the victim on trial, you know, so in the in the social realm. Um, and so that then snowballs this national conversation. If you look at the number of articles and the conversations we were having into uh, the Cosby survivors who'd come forward a decade later were now more likely to be believed to the women from Fox News coming forward uh, to the Me Too movement, right? And, and all of this in, in 2017, um, you know, all of this were very humble beginnings on college campuses. And I should just say, and I, I know I'm running, I'm, I'm talking a lot. This is my passion here, this this timeline, because I want students to get this credit, right? Um, that um, we um, ended up uh, knowing and intentionally knowing that it wouldn't just be about college campuses. We knew that people cared more about the pain and suffering of privileged students on a college campus but what we did there would have effects beyond that. Very similar to, you know, we care more about the pain and suffering of beautiful white blonde celebrities and, and strategically using that privilege in order to really launch conversations, which thankfully have been far more intersectional in their enactment. You know, as you were talking uh, about, it's about 4% of men on college campuses are is, who are responsible for the vast majority of the sexual violence that happens on campus. I was thinking about the literature more broadly about um, people who are at risk to continue to reoffend sexually. And so whether we're talking about people on college campuses or we're talking about people who sexually abuse children or priests in the Catholic church, it's about 3%. Right. Uh, and so it's not shocking. It's not surprising that we would see a number like 4% uh, of men on college campuses responsible for 90% of the sexual violence that happens. And so that kind of just stuck out to me. Uh, the second thing is, as you were talking, you sort of set the stage for the next question we had, which was uh, to talk a little bit about our book that we wrote, The New Campus Anti-Rape Movement Network Activism for Change, because it relates um you know, directly to uh, what Alexa was just talking about, and what you were talking about. So the book outlines um, what sexual violence on campus looks like, the history of anti-rape activism, including how women of color have led the way, the new campus anti-rape movement uh, that really, you know, as you said, put this issue on the national policy agenda, the shifting landscape of uh, technology and how that shaped activism work. Can you talk about your thoughts on the book? It really was your baby from the get-go, and it's such an important book. 
Well, I would say that the thing that is most important to me about the book is uh, diving into the history of anti-sexual violence work. It's a history about which there are a couple of blogs, uh, but nothing has been written in the academy. And so I spent uh, a lot of time looking at, well, when did this all begin? And the anti-sexual violence uh, organized work started with black women and it started with Native American women. It started with a woman named Sarah Winnemucca who uh, was traveling around the United States in the reconstruction era, um, talking about the rapes of indigenous and native women on reservations, mostly perpetrated by white men. And she uh, would go to state legislatures and various uh, bodies with power and tell them about what was happening. Um, she, her, her life story is incredible. I hope you know someone picks it up as a documentary at some point. At the same time, uh, we had black women uh, who were organizing efforts uh, against what was happening with slavery. So when, you know, I'm, I'm going to make this way too pat, but, uh, the abolition of slavery meant that, uh, you know, the, the formal, um, fall of slavery meant that there were other mechanisms that rose, uh, social mechanisms, if you will, uh, with that were state sanctioned violence. Um, and for black men, it was primarily lynching to keep black men in check. And for black women, it was sexual violence, rape. And so we see this organized group, uh, Ida B. Wells, you know her for anti lynching efforts. Um, she was also very prominent in anti sexual violence efforts. So that's the first peak of activism, again, started by women of color. The second major peak led into the civil rights movement. And in fact, two historians have argued that the women who were organizing in the Racy Taylor uh, case, you know, you, again, you know, Rosa Parks for uh, her activism um, around um, civil rights. But you might not know that a decade earlier, she was setting up the formal mechanisms for addressing sexual violence. And that laid the groundwork for the civil rights movement. Um, and then the third, um, you know, the third big peak, if you type into Wikipedia, like anti-sexual violence or anti-rape movements, um, all of a sudden when white women arrive on the scene, uh, Wikipedia, you know, determines that the movement has started or the, the organized efforts have started. So we see the institutionalization of the anti-sexual violence efforts in the 19, uh, late sixties and into the seventies with the rise of, um, of crisis hotlines and shelters, domestic violence shelters, many of which, you know, as someone who's founded a, 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 the New Orleans Women's and Children's Shelter, I can tell you most of the cases involve some form of sexual or domestic violence. Um, so we see the movement become more institutionalized, um, but the, the organized effort started, you know, 100 years earlier, a century earlier with, with Black women and Native women at the forefront. Also important to note that um, even though the this history and story of the third peak um, of anti-sexual violence work centers around white women, there were prominent women of color who were at the forefront of that. Then we saw in the early 90s actually a peak on college campuses. It was the first time college campuses played a big role in this, and that was the model we used for the campus, the new campus anti-rape movement um, in the late, you know, in 2010. 2010, 2011, when we started to organize. Um, and, and that latest peak was certainly the most um, successful in terms of launching a national conversation, right? And as you noted, Alyssa, um, we wrote quite a bit about how it got on the national agenda and how, um, you know, President Barack Obama, for the very first time from the White House, sexual violence was being addressed. And of course, Joe Biden is a long um, advocate of the Violence Against Women Act, and um, he has 
was was a strong supporter of um, you know campus anti-violence efforts, um, not without controversy. But he, you know, this is a White House. The Obama White House was one that was very much in favor of addressing this issue, and they did. There was a dear colleague letter um, that was uh, passed that. I'm sure many of your listeners are aware of, um, basically said, look, one rape is enough for campuses to have to get involved in this as a Title IX issue. A lot of people ask, why is this a Title IX issue? Isn't that about education and equality? Well, it absolutely is. We don't have good data on this, but we know that sexual violence, one rape on a college campus can change a life trajectory. What we do know is that oftentimes survivors, um, their, their GPA will suffer tremendously. They won't be able to go to grad school. That's a, that's not the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is they're, in, they're betrayed by their institution. They don't get the support that they need and they end up dropping out. So, this one instance can dramatically shift the course of your education and therefore the course of your life. It's really powerful information. And it's great to hear and learn about the historical context behind all of this. I feel like you're well equipped to answer the next question, which is what can we do to address the issue of sexual harm on campuses? And in other words, what needs to change? I think the first thing that needs to change is a restoration of the Obama era rules if we want to protect survivors on campus. Uh, when Betsy DeVos got in, uh, Trump appointee, um, she gutted the process. She actually had formal meetings with uh men who'd been found responsible for rape on college campuses. So she listened to the rapists and passed, you know, laws or new rulings um, through the ed department that rolled back a lot of the progress. Um, for example, um, she required that uh, survivors um, have be questioned either by an attorney or by, you know, even their rapist could question them or a representative. Uh, it's a pretty traumatizing experience. So if you're offered that, you're less likely to actually continue and file a complaint on a college campus. Um, she also shifted the rules of evidence uh, from the 50% plus one, all right, the um, preponderance of evidence standard to uh, a higher standard, uh, either 75% or 95% uh, on college campuses and different campuses adopted different standards. But she, she made it virtually impossible, uh, even when you know a rape has occurred, um, to find someone responsible. And I should say the adjudication proceedings on campus, um, you can have a much lower standard um, because uh, you, it, this is not a legal proceeding. Nothing happens. Even, even if you are found responsible, you're unlikely to get expelled. But the worst case scenario is you'll have to go to another college. Um, and it doesn't appear on your transcript. So um, the question of you know, what to do, um, college campuses really uh, have a lot to protect, right? They want to protect their reputation and their endowment. And so they don't want to be known as, as rape you, right? So uh, they do, they engage in a lot of subversive or, or subtle practices that keep their numbers low. Uh, and so uh, one of the things they do is they don't educate students about what sexual violence is. There isn't a shared understanding. So the first thing is if you want to shift, you know, from, from all cultures, if you're talking about a subculture from a broader culture, um, you can shift that broader culture or you can reinforce it, right? You can interrupt it or you can reinforce it. Um, college campuses are, are one of a few institutions that actually amplify 
culture. So students are coming in from a broader rape culture and college campuses are amplifying that rape culture, just like prisons amplify it, just like military institutions amplify it, just like sports institutions amplify it, meaning the numbers are higher in those subcultures than they are in the broader culture where they're already very high. So on a college campus, what is it about those structures that cause going to college to be you know, a risk factor for rape. And I'm, I'm laughing because it's absurd. Like if you're more likely to be raped if you go to college than if you don't go to college, right? So how do we shift that? Um, campuses could immediately shift it by uh, addressing students when they first come in. Uh, so first you'd have to have a, uh, you'd actually have to hold students accountable. You would ha actually have to say, if you engage in this, you can't be part of the campus community. And perhaps there's some restorative justice mechanisms if uh, you have the resources for that. So maybe it's not entirely just about expelling someone. It might be about restorative justice. But whatever it is, you have to hold them accountable. The second um, would be to have a shared understanding of what sexual violence is. Make it very clear. And I think, you know, consent is a big issue on college campuses. One of the things that really needs to change is this idea of nonverbal consent being enough. Um, we have numerous studies now showing that an increasing number of students are on the spectrum, that some folks who are on the spectrum cannot give or receive nonverbal cues. So you cannot have a standard for consent that is so ableist. Um, I, I was not thinking about this until I had a number of students in our federal complaint who came forward and said, look, I just didn't read the signs. I didn't know that when he said this, I, you know, I hopped in his car. I just, I thought it was this other thing. Um, and so, you know, as someone um, who has a number of people in my family on the spectrum, uh, you know, it shouldn't have taken that for me to be curious or, or interested in this, um, but it's very close to my heart. We need better standards of consent. We also need something that's so basic, um, which is, writing out, having students write out the policy, make it short, um, the sexual violence policy, this is what it is, um, it won't be tolerated, this is what's going to happen if I engage in this, and then have them sign their name. So that basic contract is something that, you know, uh, that, that colleges, the University of New Hampshire, um, Carleton, uh, these are, these are schools that don't shy away from doing it right. I'm not going to say it's perfect because it takes a lot of resources to do that. But the fact that so many campuses have this basic tool, write out the policy, write out what happens if you violate it, have them sign their name. The fact that they won't put that into place tells you everything you need to know about campuses not wanting to really hold rapists accountable. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so interesting. Um, both Alexa and I teach a class on uh, sex crimes on our campuses. And I don't know about you, Lex, but when I teach this class, and I'm teaching it this semester, actually, students say, if I had had this information in middle school, in high school, when I got here to campus, there's so much harm that would have not happened. I wouldn't have received it. I wouldn't have perpetrated it. I just didn't know. And so they're coming to terms with the fact that maybe they are survivors or maybe they are people who perpetrated while they're sitting in my classroom. It should not take till their junior or senior year to understand that. It always blows me away because they'll say, this is the first time I'm talking about sexual harm in a very real way. This is my first time, you know, they're learning about how to not get pregnant or how not to impregnate someone. They're not learning about what sexual harm is and, you know, what trauma is and how it can impact your body. 
you know, they didn't have that. And it's always shocking to me that every year there are students that say this. Um, and it says a lot about educational systems all the way down, um, you know, to grade school, really. Um, and things just don't Im- even improve once you get to the university level. Mm-hmm. You know, I have an 11 year old and we have conversations all the time about consent and healthy sexuality and porn literacy and all of these things. And he says to me, like, I'm so tired of having these conversations with you. And I said, but you're not going to hear this anywhere else. It is my duty. It is my responsibility as your parent to ensure, given the work that I do, right? Like I have the capacity to help you to understand this because you're not going to get this in sex ed in public school. Um, And so I'm very grateful that I can have those conversations with my children. I'm very saddened by the fact that very few are capable, have the the capacity um, to have these conversations in a real meaningful way. Absolutely. And I know you, you spoke briefly about some other institutions where this is problematic. Um, But, you know, institutional betrayal is seen across many systems. Can you talk about some of that based on your broader research? Uh, it's, I think it's important to know that about 400,000 men face sexual violence each year in our prison system. And because we care as a society so little about people we have imprisoned, we dehumanize them, um, that, um, you know, being raped in prison is actually just a punchline. Uh, in fact, there are entire films based around this punchline. Um, Get Hard, for example, it's just incredible to me that we devalue the lives of prisoners so much that we don't care whether or not they're sexually violated. And, um, you know, as someone who uh, works on the the front lines with a lot of public survivors, uh, the number of times, you know, people will say, oh, Cosby, oh, oh, he's in jail. I hope he gets raped. And, you know, my response is like, actually, sexual violence isn't something I wish on anyone, uh, not even perpetrators. Uh, And so uh, I would love to see a national conversation around that. And of course, a broader conversation around around uh, policing and and prison abolition, uh, but certainly talking about making the conditions better for folks who are there, Um, you know, the military, uh, sports, and what do the other three kind of primary cultures have in common? So it's uh, military, sports, uh, prisons, and college campuses that have higher rates of sexual violence. The first three are are masculinist institutions, right? Overtly masculinist institutions. Uh, Sports is a celebration of masculinity and man Hood, uh, you know, the military, the same. I mean, but what's interesting is we don't tend to think of college campuses as masculinist institutions, but they definitely are. And what I mean by that is institutions that have been created by uh, and center around serving the lives of predominantly white men. And so you see a lot of kind of systems in place um, to benefit certain people over other people. So for example, to benefit, uh, you know, the, the, big man on campus over someone, you know, over a woman he may have raped. Um, so if you want to know who has value on a college campus, look at its rape policies. 100%. Caroline, this work has not been easy uh, for you. You faced quite a bit of backlash. Uh, some of it has been downright terrifying uh, to your work and your presence in this field. What is it? Can you talk a little bit about what it's been like for you? 
it is uh, interesting to constantly be hated by people you don't know. Um, I can't say that I care much about their opinion, but I, of course, care about my safety. So, um, you know, I have a, a panic button in my office. I have a, a campus safety has a list of, uh, you know, stalkers and folks who are threatening and, and some who are very nice who remain in constant contact, but, um, you know, not in, in any sort of healthy way, stalkerish ways. So um, it's certainly that's been an issue. Um, I was also, you know, one of the uh, women who uh, came out about being sexually harassed and facing gender discrimination um, at Fox and, um, you know, was just peppered with death threats online, um, you know, via uh, my office phone um, and an instance where, you know, Two men came to campus looking for me. Not the only time I've had strangers kind of looking for me, but I do tell my students at the start of you know every semester that um, they, if they're going to invite somebody into the classroom, they need to let me know who it is. Um, and uh, on occasion, have had just strangers in my classroom and have had to ask them to leave. And I tell my students, you know, if somebody comes into the classroom, and I'm going to act in a very violent way. I'm not going to. It's not going to be like. You know, women are we're, we're asked to be pleasing all the time. That's that's I don't have that luxury, right? Not that I would want to anyway. I don't think it's a it's good for us overall. It's a function of patriarchy, but um, you know that I'm, I'm going to respond in a, a really aggressive uh, way, possibly violent way. Um, and my classes aren't listed, right? You don't know the location. My students don't know the location until the day of. I mean, it's just kind of we take all of these precautions. Um, I'm, you know, a, a martial artist. I'm not a pacifist. I actually believe, you know, if, if someone is coming for a group of people who are marginalized or, you know, I, I just don't, I don't always meet violence with nonviolence. I will say that. Um, and so I'm, I'm well prepared in my home. Um, you know, all of this to say um, that what I've experienced is a fraction of what, you know, my, you know, good friend Lily Bernard has experienced as a Cosby survivor, right? What uh, Evan Rachel Wood has experienced when she came out against uh, her rapist. It's just really remarkable how um, people continue to think that like being a, a public survivor is somehow uh, something that's going to give you something good. Uh, it's literally just telling, you know, it's putting that scarlet letter on and telling the world, right, that you know what comes next. The trolling, the harassment, the death threats. Um, I think that uh, Dr. Blasey Ford, what she experienced in having to move her home several times um, after coming out against Kavanaugh, it's just, it's remarkable to me that anyone still thinks that survivor privilege is a thing. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's very much connected to the belief that people make false allegations all the time or false accusations are so common, you know, that that happens all the time. And it's like, what, what, what are people gaining by putting this out there? As you were saying, you're often gaining really negative things, if anything. Well, I think it speaks to, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the shifting landscape of technology and how technology can be harnessed for such good activist work. And yet it is also a terrifying place where, you know, and it's not just social media, it's just access to the internet at all gives you access to activists, um, you know, public facing academics like we are. Um, and it can be really scary. 
Well, this sort of leads right into our next question, because I'm going to ask you now about institutional courage, which you have a lot of courage doing this work. So um, can, can you talk about what that is compared to institutional betrayal? Dr. Jennifer Fried's work on institutional betrayal and institutional courage at the University of Oregon um, really laid the groundwork for us understanding how and why institutions betray folks and then what institutional courage looks like. And in fact, she has founded a center for institutional courage. If you want to learn more about the research, um, institutional courage, uh, I think, is the, the small number of folks who are willing to stand up and say something um, at great personal cost. And just thinking about, you know, Kimberly Thedon, who uh, lost uh, her position at Harvard um, after you know they she went public because she wasn't a dutiful daughter after she just spoke out about the sexual violence on campus. Um, also, uh, you know, my colleague Dr. Danielle Dirks at Occidental College uh, was untenured. We had a many long conversations about um, whether she could do this work. Um, being untenured and she was targeted in horrific ways by the institution. Um, there are just so many cases where faculty members have lost positions or lost standing. Um, and of course, students speaking out, I mean, you don't know whether or not it's going to affect your graduation, whether or not it's going to affect grades in classes. Uh, and so I have, have the uh, you know, the honor of working with some incredibly courageous uh, students who have come forward and who have led this um, struggle. And at the end of the day, it's really heartening to see, you know, a decade on um, that a lot of these uh, young student activists from, from, you know, 2013, 2014 have gone on to get law degrees and are now uh, engaged in anti-sexual violence work through legal means. Uh, Laura Dunn is a perfect example of that. Uh, Carly Mee from Oxy. I mean, there's so many uh, young women from the movement who went on to get law degrees. Camila Willingham was in law school when it happened, but um, practices a lot of, of uh, great anti-sexual violence work in her work. So um, it's, it's, you know, take it comes at a great personal cost when you're talking about going up against institutions. Uh, what I didn't know when I started the work at Oxy is how institutions uh, collaborate, right? So we had a, a, a probably not unusual situation uh, where uh, the local paper, you know, the local LA Times um, was collaborating with the institution um, and actually fired a reporter over his very heroic reporting. They claimed it was over something else, but I just look at the difference in reporting pre and post. It looks like the fix was in, uh, you know, and I, I'm speculating, but wow, um, I didn't, I was not aware, um, you know, of, uh, of how institutions work together at USC working with LAPD, right? So you have media institutions working with law enforcement institutions, working with institutions institutions of higher ed. We saw this with FSU, um, with Winston's, you know, uh, Winston uh, Jameson's uh, survivor who came forward in the big cover up there. I mean, it was just, they, they did everything. That's a text, uh, Jameis Winston. There we go. That was a textbook case of uh, a survivor coming forward, facing someone who had graduated from the institution and in law enforcement who just didn't investigate and delayed it, delayed it when there was enough public pressure to do something about it, um, then didn't actually, you know, find what they should have found. And, and of course, 
right now we have multiple allegations. Um, and I know I'm, I'm rabbit holing here a little bit, but um, invariably when an allegation comes forward, I'm like, okay, so this is now going to inspire others, right? And, and then it happens. Uh, so the serial rape phenomenon. So when institutions try to cover it up and try to contain to protect their endowment and their reputation, or perhaps a star athlete, um, at the end of the day, oftentimes, you know, that cover up becomes known. And then the whole the whole defense crumbles because more people come forward, more women come forward, not always women, but more, mostly women come forward. And so, um, yeah, institutional betrayal and encouragement coming up against institutions, you might not be coming up against just your institution. You might also be coming up against a law enforcement institution and a media institution working with your college. I think about what institutional courage could look like for an institution to lean into that and how we haven't seen that, right? And how powerful that would be, um, not just for survivors, but for everybody on campus. Um, it's, it's sort of depressing being a, a faculty member at the largest public institution in the country and sort of seeing the issues that, that this institution is facing right now with our uh, previous chancellor and, you know, it's, uh, it's pervasive. It is. And can we just say out loud, most faculty are effing cowards. I don't know, uh, any occupation where you have the type of protection we have with tenure and we don't use it. And the folks who don't speak up before tenure are not going to speak up after tenure. My experience was, you know, that faculty were really supportive of this for about a year. And I kid you not, when the going got tough and, you know, articles started coming out and, you know, I, I signed a, submitted a federal complaint with 37 complainants. It very quickly went up to over 50. And these are all folks who are within the statute of limitations, meaning the last six months. Um, and the faculty only had the appetite for supporting it for about a year. And so, yeah, when the going got tough, you know what they did? They signed a tone policing letter for the faculty members and students who were taking this fight. I, I couldn't, I was astonished, but you know what, for me, it sorted faculty into folks, you know, folks who signed the letter and folks who didn't. Folks who were cowards and engaging in tone policing because it made their life difficult and they had to explain why their institution was in the paper all the time versus, you know, folks who were like, yeah, this is how change is made. And if folks think that institutions are just going to give up power and, and shift hierarchies and suddenly become, you know, not masculinist institutions that serve a certain type of student... And they think that's going to happen by, by us asking nicely. Um, that's not how institutions work. Power never concedes. It doesn't, you don't, you don't bring about shifts in the social structure, whether it's on a college campus or in a broader community, um, without a struggle. And to see so many faculty join the other side and silencing folks who are coming forward, I was like, wow, this is a litmus test. But also for me, it I it exposed my profession. I I know I I no longer feel connected to my profession because of the cowardice of faculty. So it freed me up to do a lot of, of work just in the classroom. Um, the institution for me holds almost no value because the people who populate it 
um, are not actually dedicated to social justice in their daily lives. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yes, absolutely. 100%. Can I turn that back on you? What What have your experiences of, are you both tenured? I am tenured. I'm not. Okay. Just Alyssa, I, <laughs> I'm curious about your experiences. Have you, you've seen the same thing on, on various campuses? I've seen Very exactly much. the same thing. Very much so. Uh, yeah. At every institution that I have been at. Mm-hmm. And, and you'd think my experience has, has been that non-tenured folks have been really supportive, but very scared of backlash because that's real, like you were just talking about. Um, but I feel like people that are non-tenured are the ones trying to push the ball forward. And I don't know why people who are tenured check out of everything. Like, it, it just, it's it's really depressing <laughs> to know that your chosen profession, your colleagues don't share those values. And I think that they're humanistic values. This is, everyone deserves a right to feel safe. And for people to just push that aside because they don't want to be bothered or they don't want to be upset or they don't want to be uncomfortable is really upsetting. It's very upsetting. And it's at every level of the institution, right? It's from the departmental level all the way up. Mm -hmm. and the language around, well, this is how things have always been done, so this is the way we're going to do them. It's maddening. And so people like you, Caroline, people like me, Mm -hmm. uh, we're we're troublemakers. Mm -hmm. You know, and I wear that label proudly. I have heard it everywhere. You're just, you're a difficult woman. You're, yep. You're a troublemaker. Yep. You call things out. Yep. And I'm not going to stop. It's not hard to be a difficult woman in a patriarchy now, is it? (laughs) (laughs) White heteronormative patriarchy. You know, I think my colleagues don't understand, a lot of the coward colleagues don't understand um, what the campus really is. You know, when I drive to campus, I'm driving up a road and I'm seeing all these houses and they're seeing like, oh, here's a fraternity house and here's a sorority house. And and they're driving by houses that students rent and not thinking much about it. I drive by these houses and I think three rapes happened there. Oh, SAE, the 14 rapes that one year that happened there. I drive by the pink house and I'm like, oh, you know, this student and this student were raped here in different years. Um, I drive by porch house. I'm like, oh, you know, so for me, the campus is like a, a trauma space. And I teach, a, you know, first year students. And I think here we go again. Here we, it's, you know, this cycle of trauma and the institution just doesn't, doesn't seem to actually care. And it can't, right? Because institutions are inherently sociopathic. It's got to be the leaders. It's got to be the people in them who make the difference. And when you have so many cowards and so many folks who are worried about reputation and and are incentivized to worry about money over over humans, um, then you get these institutions of trauma. Yeah. I wonder if another word for the... The, the people that we consider cowards on campus are the people who really do benefit, right? It's not just that they're afraid to say something. It's that they benefit from the status quo. Um, you know, and I see that differently as just being afraid. 
to say something. It's they, they benefit from the system as it is. Yeah. And so it's okay that other people get harmed, right? Students aren't humans. They're just, you know, student ID numbers. It's not happening to me. It's not my problem, which I think we see a lot. Like until it happens to someone close to you or whatever, till it's in your face, people don't care. And that's, I think, the sad reality with sexual harm generally. Our capacity for a self-interest is is wild and harmful. And we're seeing, of course, the effects of that now and what's happening politically and, you know, the wave, I will say that, that the, the impending rollback of Roe means the court is going to have a lot of latitude in rolling back rights. So, you know, restoring Obama era rules that only marginally address the issue weren't a real fix, but were a start of one step in a, you know, 10 steps that are needed in the right direction. Um, even that probably won't be upheld if, uh, you know, if it makes its way up to the Supreme Court, um, which I'm sure it will, because there are a lot of active rape, you know, pro-rapist organizations out there that are, and I call them pro-rapist organizations because those that's the interest they're representing. They're representing people who have been found responsible for rape or will be found responsible for rape in the future. And they're, they uh, have filed many lawsuits against institutions. And I would um, think now that, um, you know, now is the season to uh, really roll back the basic protections that Obama put in place. Mm-hmm. And it's not just those protections, right? The rollback of Roe is the rollback of all of the um, civil rights that marginalized people have been fighting for. Any privacy based right based on the 14th Amendment. Yep. And people talk about, well, it would never happen, but that's interracial marriage, that's same sex marriage, that's contraception, and of course, abortion. And we're just going to live in, you know, two Americas, one in states, safe states where those rights are protected and states fight for those rights to be protected. And then hostile states where you'll get a hodgepodge of your rights rolled back. So rights rolled back for women, you know, for, um, for queer folks, um, you know, pick your, pick your horrors, right? Um, but we really will live in two Americas within the decade. It's quite remarkable the moment that we're in. And I think it really speaks, you know, pulling it back to the campus anti-rape movement, it really speaks to the need to keep the pedal uh, pushed down for social activism. A lot of people think that, you know, progress just happens, um, that it's, you know, lockstep and linear because, of course, it's the right thing to do, but if systems of power don't function and operate that way. So if you don't have your foot on the gas for whatever the issue is, um, and of course, they're all entwined, they're all intersectional. Um, if, as we're now discovering with Roe, as all of these other identities are going to be affected as well, um, if you don't have your foot on the gas, uh, you're not fighting, you're not actively engaged in a social movement, then progress um, will stall out or, or more likely the backlash will come and you'll take one step forward and two steps back. And it really speaks to the need. You know, I think the Me Too movement is controversial to say maybe, but by and large a failed movement because social movements have two uh, 
big things they have to do. The first is raising awareness. And that's certainly what the campus, campus anti-rape movement did, uh, raising awareness about the problem so people have a vocabulary and it's on the agenda. The second part is putting in mechanisms of accountability. And that is the piece where we we didn't, we failed, right? And and we started this work and it's not like we can't, you know, continue this work. Um, I led a campaign in California with Ivy Bottini, a queer activist, and Lily Bernard, Cosby survivor. Um, and we, you know, about the, the time limit for criminal prosecution of um, sexual violence in the state of California. But we have 20 other states where we need to pass this. And really what we need is a federal law. And really what we need is the, uh, the e- Equal Rights Amendment for women in the Constitution, which would actually probably protect gender, sex, and sexuality. So it would go beyond just, just women. Um, we need federal laws. We need mechanisms of accountability. And, and the movement did not capitalize on the momentum. The, the efforts continue but the movement itself, uh, we just didn't capitalize on that momentum the way that we could have. Mm-hmm. And the sad thing is, is that there will be another, there there will have to be another wave of the movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we will learn all of it again. Yes. Right. Caroline, is there anything else that you want our listeners to know about you, about your passion for this work, about the work itself? If you're engaging in activism that isn't intersectional, then it's kind of useless activism in the sense that you're just furthering the social structures that you're trying to fight against. Um, and I'm not talking about like the circular firing squad of the left and the, all of the issues with the left and the purity politics and the oppression Olympics. I mean, really solidarity work, um, recognizing how whatever issue you're focused on might affect people who don't look like you, who don't have the same experiences precisely. Um, but uh, they're still impacted by the thing that you are fighting for. And so um, I would just you know encourage folks to practice solidarity work, not charity work, and to practice intersectional work, not siloed identity work. Um, and also, you know, be be gentle with yourself and with others. I think the left um, is oftentimes its own worst enemy in terms of effectiveness. Um, and I, I'm really troubled by the, the purity politics of of Gen Z to the point where they don't want to be involved in electoral politics because it's seen as dirty yet. And, but that's where the power lies. And I think this, this rollback of Roe is maybe a big wake up call for, you know, millennials, young millennials and Gen Z that there's a lot of power in electoral politics. And while you might have to hold your nose, you got to jump in and hopefully you're jumping in, you know, in a solidarity and intersectional way. Thank you so much for being here, my friend. It's a pleasure to talk to you about, to talk shop, right? It's, it's been a while, so. It has. Likewise, it's so good to be in the trenches with you, Dr. Ackerman. Alexa, <laughs> yeah, we appreciate it so much. I know our listeners are going to learn so much from this episode, mm-hmm. so thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be with both of you. You're badass, feminist activist. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Hello, listeners. We have a special announcement as we approach the end of Season 2. Our final episode will be dedicated to answering questions from you. 
So please send us any questions you have about the topics we have covered this season, and we will answer them and give you a shout out during the last episode. Please send your questions to beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you again for listening to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes podcast, a part of Article 3 Podcasting Network. Beyond Fear is written and hosted by Alexa Sardina and Alyssa Ackerman. All episodes are produced and edited by Christopher Antico. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear the Sex Crimes Podcast.